Well, I think your vision's got to just get stuff together. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm I'm good, man. Preaching preaching live for the first time in a long time. It's like been years now. All right. Yeah, I don't need this anymore. It's great. A few days, I won't have to wear it. It's good. Um. Okay, so I want to ask you this morning, guys. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, but I like to keep organized when I'm trying to get stuff done. I like to keep organized by to-do lists. To-do lists, not a to-do list. To-do list guy. Are to-do list people in the room? Okay. I don't know what the rest of you are doing. Uh, I, I I cannot keep anything straight if I don't have, like, a simple, clear... <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure there are different ways of doing that. But one of the things I've noticed about my relationship with my to-do list is, uh, uh, it sounds weird. Maybe that's, yeah, already you, maybe there's something wrong with here. I'm, but, but listen to me, like you think about it. I don't know about you, but I, sometimes I find I come to the end of my day and I look at my to-do list and I look at all the things I've checked off or not gotten checked off. And I've had a really funny emotional experience, uh, when that happens, either I can feel really happy that I got a lot done. I got what I wanted to get done. Or not. I, I don't feel happy. I don't, I don't, I don't feel great about um, sort of how far I've, I've gotten. For an hour, it's a lot of it. Um, and I think, I think behind that is this, is this understanding that if I can just get my life straight, if I can just accomplish a certain amount of things, if I can, um, I can keep things sorted and productive. Like, I don't know about you. I just feel like there's been so much talk in blogs and podcasts and articles and stuff about productivity. Like, it's almost kind of like a cult. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, it, and um, people have been noticing this. I mean, you look at the top Amazon bestseller list, so much to do with productivity and accomplishment and sort of just aligning your life just so much so you can get your relationships and your parenting and your school life and your everything and there's sort of this idea we're all looking for ways of doing this ways of getting better at this wisdom that we can use rules of life a law if you will um of, of aligning our lives in such a way that we can have fruitfulness we can have productivity we can have blessing in our lives we can actually have the flourishing we have the time to go on the vacation the time to spend with our kids the time to be with our spouse or our friends money maybe you want to get further in your career and, and the reality is, is that, that idea of pursuing productivity, of fruitfulness, of flourishing, of security, that's, that's actually right, it's right behind the biblical concept of blessing. And the reason um, I want to talk to you about blessing this morning, and we're going to talk about some other things as well, is because blessing, how you understand blessing and sort of its corresponding negative opposite curse, right there, right in the middle of how you document that book and um it's it's something actually that the bible is really really interested in and you kind of actually learn that right from page one so if you want to just jump with me over to genesis two or three pages in your bible um genesis two genesis one um you, you notice that god right off the bat his interest when he makes stuff is he blesses it when he does that what he's doing is he's, he's empowering it for fruitfulness 
he's, he's, with his words, he's invoking productivity actually into it so that it, it just flourishing and there's lots. And um, he starts that, he actually starts that off right with um, the fish. I think it's in day, uh, I think the fifth day, um, he, he tells the fish to swarm and to, um, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and multiply in the earth. And then um, he says that to the birds as well. And then if you jump down to verse um, 26, uh, you find God making man in his own image. Um, it's a really important concept. There's a deep rabbit hole there. and I don't have time to go down it, even though I want to. Um, and then verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so, and then, yeah, so, so what you see there is that God, he's actually wants for his people. A lot of these things that we spend so much time trying to figure out the best ways to get flourishing and blessing and, and goodness and security and authority. And so that's all just to say that the Bible's really interested in this question which to me is something that actually sits very close to the center of a lot of times, a lot of the things we spend our time and our money and our energy. And so not only that, but the story obviously doesn't, that sounds really great, right? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's lots of flourishing, lots of blessings going on. But you get to chapter 3 and things take a real downturn. As um, those of you who have been spending time in church um, around the Bible know. And when that happens, there's a kind, there's a, there's actually a curse that gets introduced in the situation. And a curse is essentially, it's all, it's basically the opposite of a blessing. A curse is almost like the de-empowerment for flourishing, for fruitfulness. So, curse is like when you spend all your time trying to, you know, make things grow out of a field, and you wait season after season, and nothing happens. You wait for the rain, it doesn't come, or it comes, and then the birds eat all of it, or the whatever else, and you put all of this work, all of this effort into getting productivity and fruitfulness, and it doesn't come. And, or you, yeah, like all, all, and that can happen in so many different ways. And so God decides that he actually wants to bring blessing into the world. Blessing, it's, it doesn't get entirely removed, but it becomes more complicated because of sin. And sin is basically just when, when human beings decide that they want to run life, run the world without God's direction, without trusting him, um, and without involving him in everything. And so, but, but God doesn't stop there. We know sort of the story. He picks one family that he's going to start a project with. And that project is to teach them wisdom, teach them how to be righteous people, to be aligned to the way that he actually designed his world to work so that they can be incredibly fruitful and then they can actually bless and bring that fruitfulness actually to all the families of the earth that solves the sin problem and the curse that follows. Um, and so basically, I just want you to recognize, like, I want blessing, so do you. And the Bible, and actually God does too. And, and the Bible is actually about this pursuit. So we have this, this one family that God decides is going to, have this, you could almost call it the blessing project um, with, with Abraham and with his family. And you get that right actually right off the bat. You go to um, Genesis 12, and the first thing God says to Abraham, he says, go from your country, just verse 1, and your kindred and your father's house, leave the place you're, you're at, 
and go to the place that I'm going to show you. Verse two, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so fast forward, this family, this happens. This family gets massive, moves to this place called Egypt. You've probably heard of it in the pyramids. And um, that, that starts out pretty well at, at the beginning. But it goes, yeah, it goes south. And, and those people get oppressed. When they're in this oppressed situation, they're slaves. That's not really a great spot to be in to actually be blessing the world. And so God says, okay, there's been a time for that. That time's up. I'm going to step into the middle of that nation. I'm going to declare war on it. And I'm actually going to take those people out for myself. And then I'm going to plant them in a land where they actually can flourish and that this project can go on. And that eventually all the families of the earth will, will be restored to this place where they don't sin anymore and that there's there's blessing and flourishing and life the good life happens for everybody and life is exactly how it's supposed to be now we've been sort of going through this one series right we've been through genesis exodus leviticus numbers now we're here at deuteronomy and with the exodus story god takes his people out of egypt and then with basically the back half of exodus and into leviticus numbers right we see this whole massive group of people, this ginormous family, move through the desert. And it's a crazy road trip. Um, tons of stuff happens. Uh, and there's, a, there's kind of this, this pattern. Um, basically, the people of Israel, they run into a problem. They don't have food, they don't have water, something like that. And they get really nervous about that. They get really jittery. They really want stuff. They need this stuff to survive. Um, which actually is a lot like us. We, we bump in that sort of thing all the time. And, um, and then basically they're like, ah, why did God bring us out here into this desert to kill us? And right there, you, you realize that they've, they actually fundamentally mistrust God. Um, and then God's like, look, why didn't you just ask? I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. And I'll, I'll bring you manna out of heaven. You'll drop bread out of heaven. I'll bring you water out of a rock. Like I can do the impossible. And, they grumble and they don't trust and they disobey. And then God is patient with him and then he judges them um, because they don't respect him and he needs to teach them that. Um, and he needs to make sure that that doesn't spread throughout the whole people. But this is a problem. And by the time we get to numbers, there's, a, there's actually a, a point where God's like, they've done me 10 times. And you're like, oh, 10 times. I didn't notice that in the passage. But what, what basically the author has done is he's like, he's actually said it was 10 different stories, different situations where there's a test thing going on where Israel is like, eh, I'm not sure if you're really going to pay attention to me, make things go well for me, do what I need. And so they disobey. At one point, they're actually, they're in the middle of making this relationship, this covenant relationship with God, actually start setting up an idol while Moses is up on a mountain. They're like, almost like they're, Israel's gone and cheated. Is there, they're almost in the wedding ceremony and Israel's cheating with the best man um, uh, or just or doing some weird other things. It's not even a real person. There's no life there in this title. And um, so you basically, this, this whole thing happens. It gets to the point where actually they don't even want to go into the land. They don't trust God enough. It's just fine. This whole generation has come out of Egypt. You're not going to get in. And it actually gets so bad that Moses himself, who's been the leader of this whole family, he, he, he doesn't believe God either. He's, he's, God 
basically tells him to, uh, and people are in need of water, he tells them that the way you're going to do that, you're going to speak to the rock. Um, and Moses is like, ah, I've done this before. I struck the rock. So he strikes the rock. And God's like, he didn't trust me. He didn't recognize me as holy in front of this whole group of people. He said a terrible example. You're not going to get into the land either. And so when Moses gets to Deuteronomy, he gets to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is essentially this big set of speeches. It's a repeat in some ways of the laws that we've noticed throughout the book so far. But it's a set of speeches, and, and Moses is after one thing. He's got basically one, like Corey, my friend Corey, Adrian, hi, Corey. Um, I know you're on the other side of the camera. Um, <laughs> you know, he likes to say, he builds website, and he, he likes to say there's a through line to everybody's. There's a, there's a main message, a statement, a main point that goes all the way through a piece of communication. Deuteronomy is just like that. So obviously, I don't have a ton of time this morning to go through all of Deuteronomy. And so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to focus on that main statement. Because I think it's really important for noticing actually how the entire story of the Bible fits together. And um, that basically looks like this. You, Moses, he sets this choice in, in front of the people. He says, you can love God and you'll be blessed. Your life will flourish, your security, you'll have authority, things will go well for you. Or you can love idols, and you can decide not to. And, and things will go horribly wrong. And so, you know, you have in the first little while, you have one to three of Deuteronomy, there's sort of this historical outline. And then verses four to 11, there's that call to, this call to faithfulness. It's the true life. Um, you have another repeat of the Ten Commandments. You have um, probably the most, one of the most important centralizations of that, of that Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You sort of get a sense of Deuteronomy. When I, I'm just going to start reading from verse 1. Now this is the commandment. This is the whole commandment. The statutes and the rules that Yahweh your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it. You can have it. That you may fear Yahweh your God, you and your son and your son's son, by, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. There's that blessing idea. As Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you the land flowing with milk. And here's one of the most important prayers in Judaism. It gets quoted a lot. Jesus is a big fan of this passage right here in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, listen. Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one, or Yahweh alone. You listen to Yahweh alone. You shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he basically goes on. You're meant to remember these things. You're meant to meditate on them. You're meant to talk about them. You're meant to learn this and apply this in every aspect. And so that that all sounds really well and good. Right? It's, it's actually not, in some ways it's not that complicated. God has gone into this whole other nation, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. He's rescued his people from 
years, hundreds of years of, of oppression and abuse. And he's provided for them in miraculous ways all through this wilderness. He's just like, I just want you to love me. I love you. Can't you see that? I've done all of these things for you. I want blessing for you. I want good for you. Love me. Just love me. And it's not that God's insecure. It's that he wants these people to flourish. That's why he wants them to love him. It's, he doesn't need them to love him. He, he wants them to love him so that they experience the fullness of his love in every aspect of their life. And so, as much as that seems simple, there's a problem. And I've kind of alluded to it multiple times. Israel has this idolatry problem. Um, Israel has this tendency, just like we do, to consider the things that we can see, the things that we can touch, the things that are within our own power, and to give all of our energy and time and resources to those things. I expect those things to actually be the things that will create blessing in our lives. As opposed to going to God first and to trust Him first. So, um, I mean, we've seen that in the wilderness stories. But I wanted to sort of bring this down to earth. There's a book that I would totally recommend to probably anybody uh, called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, it's by Tim Keller. He's where we really appreciate a lot of his stuff. Um, it's, it's The Empty Promises Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. And basically, this book, Tim Keller is basically trying to take what's in the Bible and make it a lot more understandable. Reasonable. I think he just he, he articulates this super well. He says, A counterfeit God is anything so central. And essential to your life, that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and your energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family, children, a career, making money, achievement, and critical acclaim, or saving face and social security. It can be a romantic relationship, pure approval. Competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, immorality and virtue, or even success in Christian's ministry. When your meaning in life fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at, say, in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has then I'll know I have value. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship. But perhaps the best one is worship. He gives this practical example. He says, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Ancient people. The thing is, idolatry often feels a little bit weird. Like, well, I don't like make a statue and I bow down to it and pray to it and expect it. There's some sort of spiritual force that can really help me. I mean, there's lots of cultures that do that, and some of that stuff is actually still here in Canada. That's not something that I think a lot of us is, is normal for us. But he says our, our contemporary society isn't fundamentally different from that. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, and its rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, you know, tea towers in Toronto, downtown. Spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made. Maybe that's time, energy, affection, love. Um, it's listening to lots of podcasts with the thing. Um, 
I do that. <laughs> uh, studio, where sacrifice would be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. Right? It's like that idea that I mentioned at the very beginning. That if I can just get all this stuff done, if I can just get better at my relationships, if I can just become a better parent, if my kids turn out well, if, if things, if I can just put all this effort into serving this thing, then I'll have blessings. Then things will go well for me. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn into incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. I just think that's a really helpful way of making this really practical and understanding. The thing is, is if you if you really essentialize it and you look at the way that Deuteronomy works, there's this problem of, of love. I sort of mentioned earlier before that God, he, he basically says, Deuteronomy, I just want you to love me so that, you, that things go well for you. And, and the problem with these things is that they're good things. Right? They're good things that have been expanded to such a degree, to such a magnitude but we love them in a way that's inordinate. So we make sacrifices and it causes abuse. It causes, like you think about just that eating disorder example that Tim Keller uses. Uh, think about even just the way that, I mean, there's been so much talk in the last few years about social media and the way that even the, the division and vitriol we experience in our society, um, all sorts of, all these things are, are the love of good things blown way out of proportion. But not only that, it's crazy because then it gets actually systemic. What I mean by that is it creates these dynamics of relationships that get all over the place in society, in the financial system, in social relationships, in, in the way that I feel about myself, I think about myself, my relationship to the mirror, to the people in my family. And it gets, it gets everywhere. And you get caught in these weird relationships with things. It's very, very hard to act differently. So then it's, it's a lot harder to push away from this sense that maybe at my job that I need to be pulling things off to get to the next level in my career or pulling things off to get better in, in my social relationships. And, and, it, and it reinforce, it's a cycle. You see, you see what I mean? And, and so the reality is, is that not, I mean, you hear this phrase too, and you know, this is going to probably violate a social taboo, but I got to read in the Bible. Um, you know, Love, not all loves are, are equal. Love is not love. You know what I mean? Like love, the point of often the way that it, you hear this statement often used, um, particularly when it comes to sexuality and identity and gender situations. And, and there's, there's often a tagline that I grew up with. It was that love is love, that all of these loves are equal. But the reality is, is we've, we've seen as we talked about these different dynamics and relationships that not Every kind of love is true love. You can you can be in a weird relationship with something that actually becomes very destructive to yourself and the people around you. And God ultimately is the one who gets to decide what blessing and what destruction actually looks like. He's made the world to work a certain way. And, and as this idolatry problem shows up over and over again in the Israelites, you, you reckon you realize something that they have these hard, hard hearts. There's a stubbornness. At one point, Moses, he gets to the point where he, he actually says to 
Um, then if you go to turn to Deuteronomy 10, um, see this in chapter, uh, you see in verse 12, basically God says, what God only requires that you love him, you walk in his ways. And then he says in verse 16, he says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Make Get rid of this thing that creates a barrier between you and I in your heart. This, this, this weird stubbornness that you have that makes it so hard for you to obey me. Now, the problem is, is like, if it was that simple, why didn't Israel do it? That's a, that's a big question. That's a, that's a tension. That's a question that sort of sits almost all the way through the book. And, and when we come to really the, the crux of it, Israel can't do that. And the, and the reality of idolatry is idolatry is there because of that. Because there's this weird bent in human nature that can create these crazy systems. And it can get to the point so that it's so bad that God actually judges a whole society. And you see that in, in Pharaoh's case, actually in Egypt. And you also see it with the Canaanites. And this is sort of where... I have to talk about something that's very hard for me to talk about. And it's, it's, that, it's that God actually commands his people to go in and not only just conquer the land, but to basically drive all of its inhabitants down. And if you come into the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to come across these passages. And they're disturbing because God says the judgment on this group of people, the way that their deformed, twisted, idolatrous culture, the consequence and judgment for them is that Everyone in their family dies. Everything that they own gets And you cannot pity them. You must harden your heart towards them. And, and there are a lot of things I would like to say to that. I have a whole page in my notes that I'm not going to tackle today. Uh, if you have questions about that, something I've wrestled with for a long time. And Toby's going to um, probably talk to us more about it as he talks to Joshua next week. But that, the, the thing that I think is really important to focus on, even as we wrestle with the horror of that situation, is that that is ultimately the consequence for idolatry. That's where sin leads, actually. The, to the total destruction of relationships and societies and your psyche and your, your humanity and your future, the lives of your children and their children and your name and your reputation, all that gets destroyed. And that is God's, that is something that God must do if he's going to actually maintain and love the things that he loves in the world, which is flourishing, because those things are completely empty. And so, the, the, again, back to the through line of Deuteronomy, like the, the challenge over and over again that Moses is just love me. Just, I love you. I saved you. I want you. Don't choose curse, choose blessing, choose life. Don't choose death. I saved you for life, not death. And so we get to um, sort of the back half of the book, which starts around chapter 27 and 28. So I'm just going to read a bunch of Deuteronomy because I think it will, it will, you'll, you'll get the sense of the way it hits uh, if I just read it because this is a sermon and Moses is preaching. So I'm And if you faithfully, chapter 28, verse 1, 
If you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey Yahweh, you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Yahweh will command the blessing on you in your barns and all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is given. And if you jump down to verse 15, because the blessing keeps going, there's more there. But this is here. Now here's the, here's the hell if you don't. If you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, this verse 15, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Yahweh will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession. Yahweh will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. It shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron, and Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come up down on you until you And the curses keep going. I don't have time to read all of them. There's, there's one section in the bottom that I think is really important for, for helping us see what Jesus is doing. Verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will bring on you and your seed ever extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness is grievous and lasting. He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, Yahweh will bring up on you until you are destroyed. And it's just really severe. And the rest of the Old Testament, guys, is the story of that, that being played out. And, and so when we get to chapter 30, I'm going to get more reading. Chapter 30, verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the prediction is that the, both of them will come on, on you, the blessing and the which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you. When you do that, not if, but when, the blessing is going to come, the curse is going to come, and you're going to remember this. And when that happens, you return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, 
children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul. Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God is. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, this is how far God's love goes. There, from there, Yahweh will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed. Or will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed. And if you jump, jump down to uh, verse 9, Yahweh your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your cattle. And fruit of your God. And Yahweh will again take delight and prosper. When you obey, take flight. When you obey the voice of Yahweh, you're good. But I want to trick back just to one, one verse, chapter 6, verse 6. And this is super important. Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring. You will love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and all your soul. So the promise is that eventually when all of these things happen, God will do the hard work that we cannot. And that's, that's right in that hinge where Jesus comes. Because Jesus comes on the scene in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount. So we're, thanks for sticking with me, guys. We've got a lot of scripture. I'm just trying to tackle it today. It says this, that Jesus went through all the Galilee. This is a great summary of Jesus' ministry. Teaching in the synagogues, Claiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. That affliction word. That's why I wanted to focus on the, on the back half of the curses. Because what Jesus is doing, he's coming on the scene and out of mercy, he's reversing that curse. He's, he's showing mercy. And eventually what he's going to do is he's going to come and die on the cross. So that basically all of the curse of that law, um, you don't have to turn here, but I'm just going to jump to Galatians 5. Galatians. Is this is this is where the New Testament comes in. This is how it's one story that leads to Jesus. That all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. There is written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law." Now it's evident that no one's justified before God. No one's righteous and, and has that qualification for blessing before God. But cursed. Uh, For the right, uh, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus gets hung on a cross, but all of the curse, all of humanity's curse, all of our sin, all of our evil, all of our idolatry, and the consequences for it get absorbed into Jesus. So that he can actually turn that and, and he pays our penalty so that he can give us blessing. We trade places with him on that cross. And, and so I, I guess I just want to focus on one thing because the question really is, is how do you get your heart? How do you get that surgery? What do you do when you look at your life and you realize, I really want blessing and I'm hamster wheeling? And running ragged, trying to get it. And then you consider the fact that, well, I'm supposed to love God. And, and that's the way this is supposed to 
go. I'm supposed to trust him and love him so that these, this flourishing can actually be a part of my life. You realize that you don't, actually. You don't love him the way you should. What do you do then? How do you get connected to Jesus so that that love, that life gets inside of you? So that you actually change. So that the new covenant promises of, of deep, personal, like deep, personal t- change happen. And, and it comes it comes with, and I think the answer is what, what Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, look, he's like, if I rebuild what I, what I, what I, let go of, I, I died a lot, I tore it down. I, I just All I do is I, if I set this law up, if I set up a standard of things I just need to do, I just need to work harder and get more wisdom and listen to more podcasts and try to shape my body like this person I'm looking at on Instagram and you know all these different things. I just work really hard. If I try to just do what God tells me to do, if I focus on that, I'm like, I'm just gonna really work on this. I'm gonna think about this. I'm gonna meditate on it. I'm gonna read my Bible, pray. I just set that up and I just try to do it with all my strength. It's, it's, it's only going to condemn me. It's only to show how incapable I am because there's this weird bend in my nature to try to pursue my own strength and my own power and trust things I think I control, I can control. And Paul says this, he says, but through that law, through that actually condemnation of myself, I just let myself die to the law so that I might live to God. I, when I look at that cross, I have been crucified with Christ. I love what Paul does. He actually creates a new Greek word here. He's, um, if you think of the word like synch- synch- syncretized or synchronized, like synchronized swimming, two, two people doing swimming at the same time. He says, I've been sin crucified with Christ. Um, and that, this, he just makes up a new word. It's great. It's just, when Jesus, when I look at that cross, I look at, that is my death. That is my death to the law. That is my death to the standards of my culture, of what I need to be to be successful and significant and important and to be winning. And I die to that. I was crucified there. My humanity in, in, on this side, in this broken system world, dies right there. So that no longer do I live. I receive, I receive this message of God's mercy for me in the gospel. And I receive the Holy Spirit. I say, Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you to come into my life. I need you to transform me. And the life I now live, so Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I, live in, I now live in the flesh. I live in this ill, broken body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to And so that Paul, jumping to Galatians 6, you don't have to go there, he says this. He says, so at the end, that what this produces, far be it for me to boast, to brag, to be able to flex that I've accomplished these things, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been humiliatingly executed, has been crucified to me, and I the world. So basically what the freedom happens, guys, and this is what I really wanted to tell you. Freedom happens, I think, and at the end of the day, you say, you say and you look at these standards, both that are here in this law and that are there in your life, whether that's you see a standard of what you should be when you watch a show on Netflix and you see these characters that you're like, man, I just want to be strong and brave. 
amazing like that you see that on instagram and you and you see it in your friends and like you know you're looking at you know people from interior design like oh man i wish i had interior design in my house i wish i didn't feel like a loser you know like you know and you you say at the end of the day you're like i'm gonna die all those standards seriously but you're laughing because you do this right like i do this you know but you die, you die to the, those things, and you say, and you die to your sin, and you say, those things don't actually have a defining verdict on my identity, on my significance, on my life. And pursuing them is not the way I'm actually even going to get the life and the happiness I want, and the life and the, and the transformation that I need. <clears throat> and so the offer this morning, guys, is for you to look at Jesus and you go, I need that surgery to happen for me. I need that death, actually. I need his curse to end my life in this world so it doesn't control me. So that standards don't define how I see myself. And, that, and it makes me ignore and be stubborn when God wants me to obey him and to trust him. And this got really personal for me. And I know I've been long, but I really want to demonstrate I brought all my idols. Do you know what this is? This is my books. This is my bookshelf. This is only part of my bookshelf. Okay. So I got like for self-help stuff. I got Jocko Willink stuff. I got Jordan Peterson stuff. I got James Clear stuff. Have you heard James Clear? He's all about habits and transformation. You know? I've got, oh man, more Jocko Willink. Two more books there. I got David Brooks, New York Times um, columnist. Really great. Great stuff. And, and, oh, and you're like, ah, that's secular stuff. Oh, just wait. <laughs> hey, I got, dude, I got so many Tim Keller books, I don't know what to do with them. Okay, I got Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Constitution. I got Oswald Standards, you know, spiritual leadership. I've got all these different things. And you know what, guys? It can't change me. Working hard enough at that will not change me. It will not change the direction of my nature. And, and you're like, ah, oh, the books. I don't read books. Well, think about your career pursuit and your parenting pursuit. And you're like, if I could just get my marriage right, then I'd be a good person. Then I would be awesome. It's like, no. <laughs> no, you're done. And the, the, what you need is Jesus. You need him offered as he's offered to you in the gospel. You need a living, real personal relationship with Jesus. This will not save you. It's a good book. I love this thing. But I love it because it brings me, and I need it to bring me to Jesus. Don't spend your life pursuing all these things and letting the the accomplishment of your to-do list in the end of the day define you. Don't let the way you, what you see when you look in the mirror define you. You died to those when you believed in Jesus. And you, that is the offer today. You can't come to Jesus unless you die. Unless you receive his mercy for you. You go, I, I'm stuck. There's no way I'm going to get out of this unless you pull me out. And then you come back to that. You come back. That's a heart surgery that happens to you. The Holy Spirit comes into your life. And he starts to transform you. You come to back to that. You go, 
I die to those things. You wake in the morning. I have like morning amnesia. I forget everything about Jesus first thing in the morning. And like, you know, I get on my phone and I check emails. We go back and, you, and we create a culture at this church. Think about this, guys. We, where we don't judge each other by those standards anymore. We don't evade people that don't look like us and dress like us, you know, or we treat people with respect and grace because Jesus died for them. And so we, we start to break down this system of reinforcing relationships that, where we're always measuring each other by each other and trying to do each other and feel good about ourselves. So, the, the, so basically my point is kind of Jesus' translation of most Choose life. The way you choose life is by taking Jesus, by coming to him, to letting him bear your curse so you can have his blessing. I'm just going to pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for these people. Thank you for Jesus and your gospel. Thank you for coming to pour your spirit. Would you continue to do that? Would you continue to free us from these things so we actually can, these things actually can change us. You can change us through even through lots of things. Father, I just pray that uh, what I've spoken, the things that are for you to say, that you'd bless them. I'm around, guys, if you have questions, whether it's about mechanics, theft, or weird laws in Deuteronomy, or, you know, whatever else. Um, thank you so much for coming this morning for this. Hope you have an awesome Easter Sunday and a great rest of your day.